This podcast includes strong language, descriptions of war and deals with issues of trauma and death. I get back into my vehicle, I clip my radio back on, I light another cigarette and it's just really quiet, really, really, really quiet. And I turn to my driver and I say it's about to kick off. And God knows how we didn't get hit because we were so close. So RPGs, AKs, you name it, what they had was there. There's oil all over you, hands are greased up, and your trousers are just soaked through with oil because you've got to keep these guns singing with the food that they need to continue mm. war and to save people's lives. All the while that this gun's just bang, bang. It feels like it's hitting me on the head. What is it that drives people to be brave? To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I'm Darren Coventry, former soldier and now video and podcast producer at BFBS. I've been talking to men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. We talk about what happened, what they thought at the time, and how they feel about it now. I want to thank you for coming. WO2, mm-hmm. John Thompson, the 24th recipient of the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross. We'll talk about that in a minute. And that was awarded for your actions on operations in Afghanistan during Operation Herrick. But that's not all. You were also mentioned in dispatches for your actions during the Second Gulf War, um, one that everyone would know as Operation Telic mm-hmm. 1, I assume, was the initial invasion. Yeah. And are you John or Tomo? John now, I'm about I to become say, a civilian, a, so ex- yeah, Tomo's That's exactly dead. what John's I alive. do. I was Daz and now I'm Darren. Absolutely. It's, uh, I, think, I guess you have to clean up your act before you leave and yeah, you know, get into the real world. swearing in conversation. So the first question is always, how do you take your wet? Hot, with one sugar, unless I'm hanging out and then it's loads of sugars. Great. So, Tomo, you clearly weren't just signed out the quartermaster stores at 16, reading your kind of biography. You do come across as that kind of guy, you know, you've had a career full of operations, action, and being in the thick of it, really. But, you know, there was obviously a story before that. Tell us about the early years and what, what inspired you to join the Royal Marines. Well, my father was in the Royal Navy and my mother was in the Royal Navy and they met whilst they were in the Navy. Travel around the world. My mother had my sister in Hong Kong, and then eventually they settled back in the United Kingdom. So I was born in Dunfermline, Recipher, in the naval town. And then we moved to Plymouth, another naval town. And I didn't know what the Royal Marines were until I was about four years old. All I knew up until then was Star Wars and action figures and Legos and, and you know, things like that. But I was a boy, a boy's boy. And uh, I remember vaguely, and my, my memories are fractured uh, because I very much live in the moment rather than dwell in the past or try and make up a future, is taking a trip to visit my father on his ship. And my mum, my sister and I flew by a Wessex helicopter, an old old helicopter, onto a ship. I don't know what the ship was, but it had a landing pad. And uh, when we touched down, doors opened, and the first person that I saw there, who was a significant memory, burned on my mind, was a giant of a man, the biggest man I'd ever seen in my life, with a huge moustache. A huge moustache that is to be envied was stood in front of us and I got off and I was wearing just a young boy with a hand-knitted brown cardigan, the same as my sister, and I was clutching at my mum's hands on that windy flight deck. And as we were ushered off the flight deck into some cover, I asked my mum, who's that? Who's that big man? 
And uh, because I'd never seen my dad very much, he was away at sea all the time, so it was just my mum and us. Um, and as a boy, a man is significant. So uh, she said, Oh, that's a Royal Marine Commando son. I was like, Wow, oh, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. And then the memory fades. And I always wanted, I was always really interested in being a soldier and playing guns and playing war and getting wet mud and putting it on my face, but nothing really specific. What was your first kind of years in the Marines like? What was your... Uh, well, I passed out as first time, which is a big deal in the, in the Marines. I passed out as a diamond. I got the PT medal. I got the infantry support weapon medal. I got an accelerated promotion because it, for me, training was, it, it was easy. It fitted me. All I had to do was get up early, work hard, iron stuff, march when I needed to march, shoot stuff when I needed to shoot stuff, do exactly what they said, do it as best as I possibly could and run as fast as I possibly could and never give up. So for me... It was great. And there was also no going back. I had no contingency plan. When I came to the end of training, I chose to join Heavy Weapons Anti-Tank Branch and become a um, Heavy Weapons Specialist, which was Anti-Tank Weapons, Milan in those days, GPM, GSF, and it was becoming the introduction of uh, 50 cals. And I joined Forty Commando, Anti-Tank Troop, which was the biggest troop on camp in something called Support Company when we had the principle of three in Orbat prior to moving to the, the newer manoeuvre support sort of direction that principle of four comes which comes from like world war ii with weapon systems being spread equally so that you can fight better and i i joined as a a sprog so that's what we call them or a, a young tom i suppose what you guys call them and uh i joined 40 commando and i lived on a windowsill for the first six weeks and i had to have all my shit packed up by the time the sweats came in uh, or the screws as far as, as what they'd say in the army and then they would come back, get mega pissed, throw KFC everywhere, pull the TV into their grots to watch a video, and then we would have to clean up. So it was, that was the initial stage. But I also learned from experienced people, and I had to win their respect rather than just straight away, we'll respect you as you first come in. There are places for that, but in this organisation, we all know what the person coming in can do, and we respect that. But I have to enter their organization after training and it was filled with uh, deployment in northern ireland doing intelligence in grosvenor road police station in the belfast Roman battalion exercises through the mediterranean and to america and in slow time which is the best way to do it and then developed as a marine and it, you're not a marine when you first pass out we mark a time of about four years and then actually you're all right because it takes time to develop the skills yeah. and make mistakes because you can't learn anything unless you make mistakes. That's the only way to learn. And then I guess you, your career came into that fruition at the same time as the world kind of yeah, turned definitely. upside down. I joined the Marines at the best time possible. Mm. Uh, so it was a slow start where I learned how to be uh, a commando. I did a deployment to Northern Ireland, like I said. So I got a gong, oh, my first gong, Northern Ireland. And I thought that was going to be the only one, and then it wasn't. And then Kosovo kicked off, and the Conga was a thing. I never didn't go to those, but I then deployed to Telic 1 with Delta Company, Fort Commando. So, so you were on um, Ark Royal for that? HMS Ark Royal, yeah, yeah, which was fantastic. I'd been, on, I'd been on Ocean, and I'd been on Galahad and some other ships, but there's nothing so much... It's very comfortable living on an aircraft carrier. And you then became the weapon system for the ship's captain. And it's a different type of shipping in comparison to the troop carrier ones and a different type of matlow as well. So it was a real team environment there. It was great. The Gulf War is 
going on now. Troops amassing on the border. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your foray into the Gulf War then. This is war. This is really it. So I'd say, watch Save and Private Ryan in training and thought, oh my God. So I was always really concerned of how I was going to react in war because you've never ever been in that situation. It's a really niche position to be in. And I'm in my mess deck with the rest of Delta Company and my fire support group, or it was com- called a combat team then. And I was watching Patriot missiles hit Baghdad and thinking, this is it, this is it. And everybody really wants to go more than anything else, but it still has trepidations about what does that actually mean. All the battle prep's done, you've been doing loads of fears, you've been customising vehicles, the kit's laid out, ammunition's been drawn, and you're just waiting. This was big war against a big uh, enemy. You know, Iraq had the fourth largest land army on the planet. And the weapon systems like ZSU-23 Forge is an answer. John can talk all day about this stuff. Needless to say, the Royal Marines did form part of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Not long after that, in a vicious firefight with Iraqi soldiers, John displayed immense bravery when he rescued fellow Marines from Delta Company. They'd been surrounded by enemy forces at al Uda in Iraq. In recognition of his gallantry during that battle, he was later mentioned in dispatches. It's too much for us to talk about here, but that doesn't mean it's not worth listening to. You can hear the story of this six-hour-long firefight in our bonus audio podcast series, More Tea. Now, back to the story of why John was awarded the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross. Falling off the back of Telek, there was a lot of anxiety from, within me. Um, I won't say PTSD. PTSD is a very specific thing. Probably too much drinking and working things out in your head about your actions and whether everything you did was moral and correct or not. You eventually get to the, the stage where you're like, yes, you're all right. And that, that happened when uh, I deployed onto... God, I don't even know what it was. It's like Herrick 2 or Herrick 3. It was before Bastion had been built. Bastion was two berm walls, muddy walls of one's 100 metres and one's 400 metres. And you had Tombstone next to that, which was a, an Afghan Kandak uh, location with an omelet team, which is a, a military liaison team mm. from the British that would then go with the Afghans on patrol. So we were given like a 4K by 4K area. I went outside that 4K by 4K area a couple of times, one of the times was we approached a vehicle which then just put his foot down and then cracked on and we, you know, we tried to chase after it, but with the, the weight of the weapon systems, we couldn't carry on. And that, that lasted for a couple of months, came back. After that, John completed a jungle warfare instructor course. He also took part in Arctic trials for the grenade machine gun and the 50 cal. The 50 cal is the UK force's biggest machine gun. By the time John returned to Afghanistan as part of Op Herrick 5 in 2006, the rules of engagement had changed. From Card Alpha to Rule 429. Offensive rather than defensive rules of engagement. In other words, things had got much more aggressive. And the Royal Marines were ordered to take the fight to the Taliban. John deployed with J Company 42 Commando to forward operating base Price, just outside the town of Gresk, about 50 kilometres east of Camp Bastion. And it was at Fob Price where John was reunited with an old friend. So uh, my name is Sergeant Ads Lyson. I'm a physical training instructor at the Commando Logistic Regiment up in North Devon, and I am a Royal Marines Commando. 
So I, I passed that a try and I went up to, well, Kamach, which was a fleet protection group, Royal Marines, which guarded the UK's nuclear arsenal up in Faz Lane. And then I went and did an anti-tanks course and I joined 4-5 Commando. Uh, I subsequently did Opjikana, which was the first Afghanistan tour after the Twin Towers. Then nine months later, I was out doing um, up the first Optelix of the invasion of Iraq, which Tom was on. Didn't know him then. And then after Telic, I then got drafted to 4-2 Commando. He was a corporal in Iraq at the time at 40 Commando. And then I met him there. We were in the same company together. We were a 4-2 Commando in M Company, and that's basically how I met him. And I, I do remember the first time I met him along with everybody else because they'd just come back from there. And I was like, you know, the new guy that just rocked up to the unit and they'd all, they still had this, you know, unit bond from being away. It's like, oh, who's this new guy? He hasn't done anything. And, you know, Tom is quite a brash, loud character, almost like larger than life. And I remember him bowling in and, you know, shouting at some of the lads or like trying to get them to do something. I was like, who is this bloke? And that was kind of my, my first experience of him, yeah. The two Marines were reunited on Operic 5 when Ads joined J Company at Fob Price, where things were getting busy. We were a vehicle-mounted company, so we had uh, Viking armoured fighting vehicles and we had the FSG, the fire support group that I was in, was mounted in Wimmick, so stripped-down Land Rover weapons platforms with GPM GSF for the commander, it was 7.62, javelin missile systems, 84 light anti-tank weapons, a grenade machine gun by Heckler and Clark, and we were doing MOGs, so mobile operations groups. Mm. So we had a free reign of a lot of tactical area of operations, and we we would go as far south as Lashkar, um, we would go as far east as Kandahar province, we would go as far west as Bastion, and we would go as far north as a place called Tisney, which was even further north than Musakar, where many people had been. I mean, we effectively terraformed ground that hadn't been moved across since the Russians were there. And it was beautiful and barren, thought-provoking and deadly at the same time. So Helmand Province, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in the world. As a surfer, I've, I've travelled the globe, you know, looking for waves outside of the military, you know, in our R&R periods and stuff. But it's rugged, it's sharp, the people are really interesting it's a culture that you would never really understand unless you're embedded in it you've got this big helmand river that goes right down the middle of the of the main province and it's lush it's green there's lots of farmland it would remind me a little bit of a scene out of vietnam where you've got all these mountain areas and then you come down into these valleys and you've got these paddy fields that are all laid out by the farmers and it's really diverse. It's a beautiful country. It's such a shame that it's you know, ridden and been war-torn for the last 50 to 60 years. In early 2007, intelligence reports came in from the area of Habibullah-Kalei, just outside the town of Gresk. There was a 82 mil mortar specialist and a number of bomb makers. And in that area, there were supposed to be bomb factories. So plan had come up to construct an operation for a 10-day patrol, and we prepared to go out. Vehicles were loaded up. So the whole idea for the first day was to go down into this village, go down into it, we'd secure the area, the ground troops would go out and 
we'd go and speak to the locals. But we also knew that it was a bit of no man's land where the Taliban were as well. To the north of Goresk, there was probably about two to three kilometers of this no man's land where there was constant fighting. So if we ever came there, the Taliban had come down the river and you'd know you'd be in a firefight. So the whole idea was to go down there and see what was going on in the middle of the green belt. On the 10th of January, 2007, J Company, 4-2 Commando, set off for Habibullah In typical commando style, they wanted to arrive early while it was still dark. I remember we left, me and Tomo were at the front of the convoy. So the way that we, we used to work, we used to have two uh, Wimex, so armoured uh, Land Rovers with heavy machine guns. Two at the front, two at the rear. Me and Tom were at the front, and then you'd have the main body, which at the time was Vikings, which were the, the ground troops and so, so all the uh, close combat troops. A Viking is an armoured vehicle with rubber tracks, which is sort of made of two cabs joined in the middle. And, as Ads explains, a Wimmick is a stripped-down Land Rover, fully loaded with weapons. It had no side armour, had no doors, had no windscreens. We'd been given a little bit of ballistic matting that we'd basically put on the vehicles ourselves with a bit of bungee as like a bit of protection. But if it got hit with some 7.62 or a bigger calibre round, it would have gone, it would have just shattered. So the idea was to move into the Habibolicle area in the cover of darkness and create the element of surprise, which is kind of difficult when you're a mobile operations group because you've got vehicles that literally sound like, you know, mythical creatures growling through the night. And like discipline, you, you can close that down, but you're making so much of a noise, they're going to see you and hear you coming. And what had happened, uh, myself and my one of my really, really good friends, a guy called Adslyson, we were leading the main body of the company, which included OC and main, uh, which is a sergeant major, and one troop and three troop. And uh, two troop had moved away and moved to the south of Habibolaclay to dominate high ground to provide overwatch and fire support should we need it. So it all went well, all went to plan until the point we got to the sluice gate. And when we got there, one of the Vikings threw a track. We then spent subsequently the next hour and a half, two hours waiting for the track to get refitted to the Viking to then move on, which as anyone will know, the element of surprise is completely gone. I had this little inkling in my head that something was going to happen now, whether it was there or on the way in, I didn't know at the time. And in that, we lost the element of surprise because the cover of darkness then began to fade, you know, in the dark, dark blues of the beginning of the morning as the sun's coming out. And people in rural areas in the Middle East wake up very early. It's not like us, oh, seven o'clock, can I snooze for another hour? They're up early when the crow calls. And news travels fast. Oh, does it ever? Yeah. Does it ever? It's either people running to tell somebody else or it's a handheld radio. And, you know, there'll be sentries out. So the, the, the track got fitted. We got back onto the road and we were driving up this track. Now, I painted an image. These tracks aren't like roads. It was like a single dirt track in either side. It was angled down to a drainage ditch because we were going down through into farmers' fields. And this was the only road into this village called Halibala Calais. Just on the outskirts, as we were coming into it, there was a, an embankment to our left-hand side. And I was thinking in my head, this is a perfect place for an ambush. 
So I halted my vehicle, got out, unattached my radio to a clip, because uh, I had a day sat with the radio. Swung my GPMG forward so I could get out and then uh, approach the, uh, the the shadow, which just happened to be um, a murdered um, civilian contractor who'd been working for ISAF, who'd had his um, eyes cut out and shot in the uh, in the body. And we knew that because he had a little note attached to him by the Taliban. So our interpreter came forward and then, you know, said that this person had been executed as a traitor to the people of Afghanistan or something along those lines. And this is what happens when you collude with ISAF. I get back into my vehicle, I clip my radio back on, I light another cigarette and it's just really quiet. Really, really, really quiet. And I turn to my driver, um, Beegs, and I say it's about to kick off. And then it just goes fucking boom. Because of the, the hue of the, the hueish blue of the sky, which is still dark, Tracer just lights up. And God knows how we didn't get hit because we were so close. So RPGs, AKs, you name it, what they had was there. They initiated the contact. We all turned and started engaging this ambush site. Um, myself and the, 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 the other Winnick, commanded by my mate, uh, start to engage straight away because we're the primary combat power for the company and there's nothing better than um, a 50 cal on the battlefield. It will shake your world if it's firing at you and it will shake your world if it's firing next to you. And being a commander, you, so you've got a driver sat here and then your commander, you're, you're slightly raised so you can engage with the, um, your GPMG. But where we were and where the fire was coming from, which was a 270 degree arc, so everything off to the north, everything off to the east, and we were getting combat um, uh, engagements from the, the south as well, as well as combat team two started getting engaged from the south. RPGs, AK-47s, uh, PKMs, and 82mm mortars just all coming in, and the whole of the darkness of the night just sort of lighted up, and then we started engaging straight away. There was up to there must have been about 14 or 15 different engagement sites all around to our frontage. And uh, yeah, the world just erupted. My SOP, anytime somebody fires a round at me, is to identify a target and just unload a box of 200 rounds straight in that general direction. What that does is immediately gets whatever that firing point is to put its head down. You're not going to get up from a 200 round burst. What that also provides is the time in which it takes for the main weapon system to identify that point of contact that I've hopefully identified correctly because I'm firing in that general direction what I believe the point the, the target is. Or we may be able to see other ones and then they'll start opening up and it is just very, very loud and um, it becomes part of your body as it, as it starts to fire. Now I'm slightly higher, so the 50 cal machine gun barrel is here above my head. And when a 50 cal machine gun barrel fires above your head, it's like somebody hitting you on the head with a sledgehammer. It is horrible. You know, I'm, I'm engaging the enemy, changing boxes, putting on link, back in, bringing out fucking bottles of engine oil to keep these weapons going. There's oil all over you, hands are greased up, your windproof trousers are just soaked through with oil because you've got to keep these guns singing with the, the food that they need to continue a war or to, and to save people's lives. All the while that this gun's just bang, bang. It feels like it's hitting me on the head. Now, you know yourself, 
What's your first thing you're taught when you get into an ambush? Get out of the killing area. 50 cows will go in, GPMGs will go in, the drivers had LMGs, so they were putting the rounds down. Could not hear anything through the comms. I know Tomo had problems with his. I try to provide information back to the company saying contact weighed out, but I'm not hearing anything back. Straight away, I know that we've got to provide a safe window for the rest of the um, riflemen embarked in the Viking weapon um, vehicles. And the only way you can do that is by pushing further and closer to the enemy, which is something I dominantly tried to do in every single engagement I was involved in Afghanistan. Even one where I've, like, I've lost all the drive to my vehicle, I got them to pull me in on the back of a Viking and then uh, I let the handbrake off and we rolled down into closer to the area to my driver's shock and horror. It's a tough tough job being a driver for yeah. somebody like me in Afghanistan because you've literally got a steering wheel. It's a tough job anyway. It is, it is. Because you've got, you've got to concentrate on your driving. Massively. Remember I said at the start, we had embankments either side. We had Wimics that were top heavy. So if we drove down there, they would have rolled over. I couldn't get any comms back to the lads behind us. So I had to get out my vehicle in the middle of this firefight. I ran all the way back to the first vehicle and tried to get somebody to open the door to speak to them, to tell them we need to get out the killing area. I got told we need to maintain our ground. And I was like that. What? Like, are you smoking crack or what? Ended up running back. Don't know how I didn't get shot because the rounds were landing all over the floor. I didn't have my personal rifle with me because I literally ran back to say something to come back. Jumped back in the vehicle, told Tomo, tried to shout to him, you know, we, we can't turn around. And we ended up sitting in this killing area and the top covers from all the vehicles were starting to be engaged. And, and here's one of the things is, and it's, it go back to what I believe is the greatest accumulation of people in any one time, is like my relationship with my driver was almost psychic. You could just use my hands and you'd know exactly what I meant. And he would, I would know what he meant. And we could talk freely. And my gunner knew everything our SOPs were were so slick that we could just fight battles and we knew that every other vehicle could do that as well every other every other team so uh, I was like we've got to get closer into it or shout at him or whatever I said to him but we just went straight into the ambush area put about 150 meters into the ambush area which created a huge amount of space for combat team one to dismount which they did they got out the armored vehicles because there's rpgs flying around and moved down into cover in the ditches whilst we attracted all of the fire from all the firing points so two vehicles with an hour's worth of heavy weapons munitions and small arms munitions just started engaging multiple targets and it was assessed to be 58 different multiple target positions in that battle Continually, I'm trying to send messages back to Zero. Continually, as a commander, I'm like, what's the ammo cas? Ammo cas, ammo cas. And ammo cas is, what's the ammunition state of the weapon? How much ammo have we got? And I'm in, in my mind, I'm doing a, a resource time equation of how many minutes worth of fire we've got. Do I need to start controlling the fire? Because I was the senior, the senior commander, I would then dictate the controlling the fire from other vehicles unless they then had targets which are exploiting them in which case their, their commanders would carry on so i'm trying to work this out and i want to know if there's casualties or not i can't hear most of this stuff but what the information i'm getting back from my brother vehicle my brother wimmick and my gunner and what i'm firing myself i know that we're rapidly going through ammunition 
It was 10 days worth of ammunition, so we had an hour's worth of fire. And we would get an eagle resupply at any one point, but an hour's worth of fire from two 50, uh, 50 cal, a grenade machine gun, two GPMGs, two Minimis, uh, six rifles, six pistols, two Milan, and loads of, and, uh, loads of grenades and light anti tank weapons is enough to really, really fight a battle, especially when you've got the rest of the company, which has got extra ammunition as well. Within 10 minutes, we've gone down to 50%, and there's, there's multiple targets everywhere. My machine gun broke, was firing so, at such a rate that the rivets literally f came out of the, the housing for the gun. It's firing on automatic, and I'm not even pressing the trigger. So the, the handle, the firing handle, just completely come off. So I managed to fix my gun um, and continue fighting. All the barrels are white hot. You can effectively see the rounds coming outside the barrel. Like birds are flying out, um, getting hit and dying straight in the sky because this wall of steel that's invisible to them is just taking everything alive out in between the space. And it's going the, the other way as well. Oh, it's yeah. Going it's way. coming the yeah. other way. Literally, there's dust everywhere. It's hitting the vehicles. RPGs are exploding either because they've, they've reached the 900 metres of their flight path and just detonated or they've been set to detonate as airbursts. Mm. So that, you know, you've got shrapnel flying all around the air and then RPGs actually hitting the vehicles. And something I'd experienced before was when an RPG has exploded close to my radio system, it would knock it out. So here's me trying to get comms back to zero and trying to get some information and tell them that our ammo states are not hearing anything back. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just not my radio out. It's not the fill. Anyway, I get out my vehicle, tell the guys I've got to go and get tell speak to zero and get an ammo resupply and then run back along that five-meter-high duck chute, effectively. Driver's got to stay with the vehicle. Primary weapon system operator's got to stay with the vehicle because that's how it defends itself. So they're, they're good. Run to the next vehicle, speak to my brother Ads uh, and his team and uh, tell them I'm going back for a resupply. This is where my memory sorts of fragments is because I'm literally focused and it becomes this one person, this first person sort of position and then just start running back to the company along the road. See bullets ricocheting off me, hear the zip as they go past. You know, if you've heard that zip, you know what it's like. It's shocking. Uh, and I can hear the explosion. And you know, it's like, you know how close they are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you don't hear it. When, when they're kind of five, ten metres away, you don't hear that. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's a, it's, um, it's a horrible sound as well. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible sound. And, al and also worth pointing out, how much, how much weight are you carrying? Oh, I don't know a number. I should know a number. You just number. know it's hideous. I, yeah, it's hideous. So you've got full plate body armour, mm -hmm. front and back, and the sides. You, you, Everybody should wear the sides. You've got your helmet, which isn't the new lighter Kevlar ones. It's, a, it's a, an older a Mark VI helmet. You've got... Well, we were wearing windproof, so they're slightly heavier than normal combat order. You've got 10 magazines fully bombed up. You've got a rifle. You've got another 300 rounds in bandoliers. You've got two HE grenades, and you've got a FOSS grenade. And then I've got my radio. I mean, so you're talking, it's about 50 kilos, yeah, yeah. I imagine, m maybe a bit more. And then as soon as the battle starts, your body will just go into uh, maximum use of water, food, yeah. adrenaline kicks off. So you become hungry, thirsty and tired, potentially straight away. Luckily, that adrenaline keeps kicking in and you just keep plodding on. Plus, it's all been trained. You've been put through stress. Yeah. You've had this before. It's not a new thing for your body. You're not going to start panicking. You're going to keep producing the goods. And do you know why you're going to keep producing the goods? Because that battle's got to be fought. These have got to be made secure. And now, my key is to get back to my team that's running low of a life-saving yeah. resource, which is ammunition. So you ran back. Ran back. And got ammo. 
do I know? Other people may have came back. And is this when you kind of realised that the radio was working fine? So I came back and I started, so our major's there, a guy called uh, Marty Pellin, big tash, very tall, very stout, stoic guy. And he started talking to me. I can't really hear him. I'm shouting. And I need ammo, I need ammo. See all the guys down in the bun line. And I'm just stood there and they're like, take cover. And I'm like, fucking just give me the fucking ammo i've already been in this contact it's either going to hit me or it's not i'm a great believer in destiny and i'm not destined to ever die in war i absolutely believe that so rounds are going down i may have had a cigarette i'm trying to tell them that the radios are out and they're telling me that they've got the messages and then somebody noticed there's blood coming out of my ear and but what had happened is the the percussion and force of the ejecting rounds from a 50 cal had burst both my eardrums. So I couldn't hear anything. But the radio was working fine. The radio was working fine. My whole theory about RPGs taking out, <laughs> out the net was wrong. So I picked up three containers of 50 cal ammunition each, um, which is like the limit of what can go in each hand. They're 16 kilograms each. I had some belts put over my, my neck and then off back to back into the killing area. There must have been other people come with me. I don't rec- I don't remember who they are, but whatever they did was gallant and courageous and what their actions allowed us to fight longer and save other people's lives. So mm. legends as far as I'm concerned. Straight in, dropped the ammunition off and then uh, the, the second vehicle told me that the grenade machine gun had broken. And I, because I'd done the trials with Heckler and Cock I, and I taught everyone in the company the GMG, I, I was the best person to fix the, the gun. So I jumped up on the, onto the second wagon, spoke to the gunner, what's happening? He tells me I'm cocking it and it's not firing off. And I was like, get out of the way then. So he climbs out and then I get behind the gun. So you've got this burn, burn line of the canal road that's five metres above the irrigation ditches. And then you've got a two and a half metre Wimmick. And then you've got a GMG on top of that, which is about a metre and a half maybe. So you, you're exposed. So Top Gunners are brave, brave people. They haven't got face plates. They can easily get shot in the face and then uh, they just become a distant memory in uh, people's lives. So I, I test the weapon. It doesn't work. I strip it down and then one of the recoil springs, uh, a little pin that holds these big, powerful springs had snapped. I was like, oh my God, where am I going to get that from? Because it's hard steel. So I get this 14 gauge out, feed it through, wrap it round, put it in, load a belt, Top cover down, cock it, doesn't fire off. Cock it again, doesn't fire off. Strip the weapon down again, the 14 gauge hadn't stuck. Do the same thing again, my, my hands are just full of OMD 90 engine oil, really, really thick engine oil, the kind that you put in your car. So everything's slipping, I'm trying, I've got the, the guts here, I'm pushing it on, the fucking bullets flying everywhere, RPGs exploding, 50 cows going off, GPMGs firing, the net's going somewhere that I can't hear, crazy there's 80 more 82 mil mortars coming in and i try and feed it to fix it again put it in no do it a third time and it fixes and we can continue firing and then i get back out and get into my vehicle that that lasts for four hours and it's it's just find an enemy shoot it find an enemy shoot him find an enemy shoot him find an enemy shoot him move 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 as much as you can we're effectively stuck there and all we'll have to do is just get another ammunition um um, resupply and do you think there's um you know, war marines in particular you have this commando spirit this which i, I would describe i mean i've worked with lots of different types of members of the armed forces but the commando spirit always seems to be something a little bit extra a little like add-on i think there's very many similarities between lots of different organizations and armed, armed forces i think our sense of humor is a 
similar, that dark sense of humour, which is key to the function of, uh, of us in these conflict areas. But what we do is we practice and train, practice and train, practice and train, practice and train. And, and I was talking to one of my friends about this, because I'm leaving soon. I'm leaving the military, I've got a month left. And you take this, you take this civilian, oh, I'm a civilian. And then you, then you put them through commander training. And six months of intense commander training, you fundamentally change who that person is and how they act. And they become altruistic. And they want to please everybody around them in that organisation. You want to please them. And then you continue that. Excellence, integrity, honesty, self-discipline. These are our commando values. And we stick to them. Yeah, you might get drunk and you might mess, you might maybe shy away from them. But when things get serious, that's what we stick to. And, that, not, and I guess that's what, when it matters. Absolutely. Life, everyone can have fun and joke around, but you put your serious head on when things get serious. You be a grown-up. You take the responsibility of yourself and everybody else around you. That's the only way that you'll ever make a difference in the world, is by taking responsibility for everybody. And what, so at the end of your four hours, how did that kind of situation wrap so up? So we won the firefight. Hooray! We won the firefight. Um, 58 contact locations, and either killed, Kazivak by their own forces, or extracted under an overwhelming weight of fire from, from us. But we won the battle. What that allowed is it allowed the members of one troop riflemen to get out debus and to do what we were going to do at night which was to exploit and secure that area of Habibolakale. bombs found bombs made of nails and pressure cookers multiple ones multiple munitions mortars radios icom scanners icom scanner brilliant get the frequency off them you start getting information in you start to understand the pattern of life and that would get fed back through the intelligence chain and the rmp chain so that you start to build up a picture of who they're essentially as far as your your things the criminal so you ended up having to withdraw back to price after that because you'd used all your ammo yep so we'd used 10 days worth of supplies in in a in a four-hour period the company commander decided that we were going to reconstitute back to full price and bomb up refuel up shake out and then and then go again and we, we got back to price and just went through the same process that we would always go through. I went to see the, the medical officer about my ears because they were ringing. And I had just a, a massive headache and I couldn't hear much. And, uh, and he told me that I'd burst my eardrums or per perforate the membranes of my eardrums and that I wasn't to go back out on patrol, which was like a really hard part of the day. Cause... But it wasn't the end of your tour. I guess, no, I no, guess no, it could no. have been it could have been the end there, but it wasn't. You got to No, so I mean I stayed back and they went out on patrol, which was heartbreaking. Um but then we can ju we just continued there on. There was many continued more. On. Yeah. And ultimately you were later informed you're going to be awarded the conspicuous gallantry cross. Mm -hmm. Uh I said at the start, you're the twenty fourth recipient of that medal. It's it's actually one of the rarest medals that we have as a as a nation. It's also the second highest award for gallantry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Victoria Cross being the highest. The twenty-third award is a unit award. I don't know if you know that, which makes you actually the twenty-third individual recipient. I think it was the Royal Irish mm. were awarded awarded it as a unit again for actions in Af Afghanistan. How does that feel when you kind of get given that news? Well, I'd had it before, 
So I knew I knew I'd I'd gone with some. Uh, we'd been called to a parade at Stonehouse. Uh, which is our HQ, and then somebody came up and said, oh, the RSM wants to see you, you're in loads of trouble. And I was like, what, ouchie, no, we're not. And then we we moved into the officer's mess, and then I saw the blue envelopes that you get when you get told that you're going to be um, given a gallantry award, and that, and I was like, oh, my God. Uh, because there were, it was a primed time for gallantry. Mm. And Marines don't really big each other up, and not a lot of awards get given out to Marines, so they make that makes it extra special. And just like when I opened my letter for mentioning dispatches, I opened this letter uh, with no expectation. I have to smile because it's like yeah. it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah, you know, big deal. I'm little kid from a council estate could have gone. My life could have gone so many different ways. Opened up, and it was like boom, conspicuous gallantry cross. Jeez, wow. And more so was the best part was taking my mum to. Buckingham Palace, where she sat down with lords and ladies and applauded her son, who was... What happens in an investiture is you have knights and dames and people being given awards for MBEs and OBEs, and, and they all go through, and then they sit down. And then they, they sit down in recognition of those who have won awards for military actions, so you line up. And when you go through with a military action, it's the highest receiving award that goes first. So I was the first person in the line. And um, my mum got to sit next to the, the great and the good of this nation and watch her little boy uh, stand in front of her majesty, the Queen Elizabeth II, and have a great award pinned to his chest for being part of a, a fantastic group of brave men um, who stood in the face of chaos and darkness and said that we will bring light in a, a sort of narrative way. We'll, we will protect the people around us and we won't, won't let you conquer us. So John Thompson is a extrovert character, larger than life, but very humble with it as well. He's courageous, but he's also the type of person that if you get on the wrong side of him, he'll tell you about it as well, which I think is a really good character trait, especially when you're in an environment that we've been involved in in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's kind of like the evolution of, of how your personality develops out of 10 years of fighting different different conflicts. He's also a family man now. His entire concept of the way that he was as a, as a commander on the ground to where he is now has developed significantly. Um, and, his, and his focus in life has changed as well. He's always had the respect of the lads, He's always led from the front as well. So whether he has taken control as a point man to set an example to the rest of his lads, section, troop, or whatever he's been involved in, to also being really confident when you're in O groups before you go out on a mission to say, actually, no, we can't do that, or yes, we can do that, and speaking up for, for the lads as well which makes him a really strong, bold character, in my opinion. What's next? I want a job. I want somebody to give me a job. My main aim now is I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything apart from uh, hug and love my children and watch them grow. I love looking at their ears and their heads and their, and their reactions, and I want to create the best life for them. I also want to take all of my experience and what I've been told is inspirational leadership and understanding me and taking myself from the darkest parts of my life and the lessons that I used in order to bring myself away from 
the abyss to a happy, balanced man to help other people. So I've started a business called Teach Coach Mentor UK, coaching and mentoring business uh, that hopefully will expand and I, I'll get up and speak and, and tell people my story and if people can gleam a little bit to change their lives or make their lives better, to make them more calm and understanding and compassionate, then fantastic. But I'll continue to do leadership and management, all for the aim of well, my new walk, my new walk is everything can be associated. You know, if Forrest Gump can say life's like a box of chocolates, then I can say my life is a, a continuing number of battles in the war that is John's life. And John's next battle is making sure that his children grow up happy, healthy, understanding who they are in this world and what it is makes them happy and then for, to assist pursuing their goals. And then I'll one day die a happy man. Tomo's Citation is an extraordinary read. Here's an extract. This contact was the fiercest the company had endured during the six-month tour. That mission success was achieved and no friendly casualties were sustained was attributable to the fortitude, bravery and level-headedness of Thompson in the face of overwhelming enemy fire. He displayed gallantry, determination, outstanding professionalism and exceptional leadership skills far beyond anything expected or imagined throughout the entire operation. This particular act of bravery led to the defeat of an overwhelming number of Taliban and was executed without any thought for his own safety. Universally respected and revered, he has been key to the success and morale of his company and through his actions many lives have been saved. The sum of all Thompson's repeated bravery and selflessness in the face of the enemy is extraordinary and worthy of the highest public recognition. Tea and Medals is written and produced by Darren Coventry and Josella Waldron. Edited by Andy Prada with sound design by Terry Wilson. Original music is by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths. With thanks to John Thompson, CGC and Ads Lyson. Let us know what you think. Email us at podcasts at bfbs.com. Thank you.